Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ, and welcome to the audio ministry of Christ Church of Livingston County. The following are three excerpts from a Covenant Renewal worship service led by Pastor Dirk DeWinkle, teaching elder at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. Call the confession this morning is from Proverbs 27, verse 4. Wrath is cruel and anger a torrent. But who is able to stand before jealousy? Jealousy is a force to be reckoned with. It surpasses anger and wrath for vehemence. So first let's cover the anger and the wrath. Wrath is cruel, is what their text tells us. It lashes out, and it hurts, and it damages. It is vindictive and mean. It's the opposite of gentleness and kindness. And anger is overwhelming. Our text calls it a torrent. The text in the Hebrew is literally a flood. This is why you get out of the way of an angry person. Because you don't want to be overcome by their fury. So far we have two statements of fact, but the point is the rhetorical question that follows. But who is able to stand before jealousy? Provoked jealousy is worse than the fierceness of wrath or the overflow of anger. And the word translated jealousy there actually has three different meanings. It can be jealousy, it can be envy, and it can be zeal. So provoked jealousy or envy or zeal is worse than the fierceness of wrath or the overflow of anger. And furthermore about that word, you don't know which it is except depending on the context. But in the proverb, where we're invited to wrestle with wisdom, we're invited to look at the word in all three contexts. So jealousy is the sort of thing that Solomon warns us us about in Proverbs chapter 6. Where we read, Whoever commits adultery with a woman lacks understanding. He who does so destroys his own soul. Wounds and dishonor he will get, and his reproach will not be wiped away. For jealousy is a husband's fury. Therefore, he will not spare in the day of vengeance. He will accept no recompense, nor will he be appeased, though you give many gifts. So in this scenario, there is no avoiding the consequences, and there are no limits to them either. And this is because jealousy is connected to honor, and honor cannot be bought. Otherwise, it's not honorable. This is also connected to the fact that jealousy is a necessary component of love. We see this in the Shulamite's declaration to her lover at the end of the Song of Solomon. She says this, Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is as strong as death, jealousy as cruel as the grave. Its flames are, are flames of fire, a most vehement flame. Many waters cannot quench love, nor can the floods drown it. If a man would give for love all the wealth of his house, it would be utterly despised. Again, we see that love is honorable, and it's powerful, and jealousy is when that love has been violated. 
In this, we are made in God's image. For our God is a jealous God. He is jealous of you and me. He is jealous of His people because He loves us. Because He loves us, He holds us accountable and demands our purity and our faithfulness to Him. Envy is very similar to jealousy. Envy is covetous jealousy. Envy is twisted desire. But it also is very strong. The cold calculations and settled intentions of envy far surpass the damage caused by simple wrath and anger. For like jealousy, it cannot be satisfied. But unlike jealousy, because it is wicked, envy works in the dark, hidden from sight, and it becomes a root causing all sorts of evil, ill will, evil speaking, and destruction to community, lives, and property. Finally, zeal is also more powerful than simple anger and wrath. Zealots are fanatics. When men are filled with zeal, they may justify all kinds of riotous and revolutionary tactics. In the name of a cause, they will latch on to whatever means they have at their disposal. For the sake of a fad, they may sacrifice all kinds of common sense and wisdom. But here is where we must become very discerning. If fanaticism is focused on anything less than God and his Christ, it is idolatry, and it will end in some form of destruction. But we are called to be zealous for Christ. In Christ, in the zeal of the service of the Lord, godly men have moved mountains, taken cities, and furthered the boundaries of the kingdom of heaven. Indeed, before the church... Filled with the zeal for heaven, who can stand? But the path toward that righteous zeal is only ours in the humility of faith and repentance. It is only when we give up our inordinate loves and lusts that God makes us makes room for holy ones. He cleanses us and makes us fit for his service by his means in his time. This reminds us of our need to confess our sins. So if you're willing and able, please kneel. goodness in revealing yourself to us in your word. Father, we thank you for revealing yourself to us through the centuries in the church and through the, the forms, the creeds of the church. Father, we ask now that your blessing would be upon us as we study your word and the Apostles' Creed. Pray that you would fill us with light and understanding, comprehension, May your spirit be present with us. May he illuminate the scriptures that we read. May he apply the truths that we learn. Father, we pray that you would fill us with faith. That we might understand what it is that we believe. And that we might faithfully confess and declare our service, our allegiance to you. Father, we pray that you would fill us with hope. The hope that comes from knowing you 
and how you've revealed yourself to us in your word through the Holy, Holy Spirit and through the gospel. Father, we pray that you bless us. In Jesus' name, amen. So today we're beginning a new sermon series. We finished the book of Jonah, and now we are going to start a study of the Apostles' Creed. Now, I think I should start with a brief explanation of the title to the message today, which you can find in your bulletins. It's the intro to the Symbolum Apostolicum, our rule of faith. Introduction to Symbolum Apostolicum. In Latin, creeds are symbolum. And apostolicum is simply of the apostles in Latin. So hence, symbolum apostolicum is apostles' creed in Latin. And this message today is our introduction to the series. The creed is also called a rule of faith. That terminology, rule of faith, is something that we're familiar with from our our Reformed creeds, our Reformed heritage, where the Bible is, is, is delineated as our ultimate uh, infallible rule of faith. But the first time that terminology comes up, it's one of the church fathers talking about the Apostles' Creed as a rule of faith. A rule is a standard, and its function is to mark out or to separate. It's a standard that delineates In this, the Apostles' Creed marks or identifies who Christians are. It identifies Christians and separates them from non-Christians. As we just read in our New Testament reading, um, uh, we can't say that Jesus is Lord without the Holy Spirit. And And in the Apostles' Creed, we declare that Jesus is Lord. So... In the Apostles' Creed, we're marked out, we're separated from non-Christians by specifying what it is that we believe. What it is that Christians believe. The first words of the Apostles' Creed are, I believe. And in Latin, that is credo. And that's where we get the word creed from in the first place. So when we talk about Apostles' Creed or Nicene Creed or Athanasian Creed or Chalcedonian Creed and all the creeds that the church has, the doctrines that the church holds to, what those creeds are are definitions, distinctives about what it is that we hold to be true. What do we believe the Bible says about God? So when I, pro- when I proposed the, the question of teaching on the Apostles' Creed to the elders in session, the question came up, came up about whether or not this series would be um, you know, scriptural, or if this was just going to be a topical series based on a human, a human creation. Since the Apostles' Creed is not Bible verses, it's a human creation uh, that the church has put together in response to its faith. Um, so I was question about whether this is going to be a scriptural or Bible-based series. And I think that was a fair question, and it's worth thinking about. Now, obviously, this will be a little different from our normal expositional preaching through a particular book of the Bible, where we go from verse to verse, chapter to chapter. But the short answer is that the creed is a summary of what Scripture teaches. We will be pulling from many places in the Bible as we dive into the doctrines that we hold to and confess every week when we recite our creeds, the Apostles and the Nicene Creed. 
So every week in our worship service, we do recite either one, 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 or, one or the other of those two creeds. And this is because one of the basic elements of faith, one of the, 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 the basic elements of faith is response. Jesus tells us in Matthew that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. When belief in God fills us up, We can do nothing but confess it. Jesus also tells us that this is, and this is, he tells us in Matthew 10, 32, verses 32 and 33, that whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. So Jesus gives us a positive commandment that we are to confess him. From the earliest centuries of the church, believers have been confessing Jesus with the words of the Apostles' Creed. At its core, it grew out of the confession of Peter in Matthew chapter 16 and the baptismal formula that Jesus gives us in the Great Commission. So Peter's confession from Matthew 16, starting at verse 15. I told you there was going to be a lot of Bible in this series. Um, Matthew 16, starting at verse 15. Jesus said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So Peter confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, the Christ, and and Jesus gives him this glorious Prophecy, promise that he is the rock upon which Jesus will build the church. And in the Great Commission, in Matthew 28, we read, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. So as we're going to see, as we dive into the creed over the next several weeks and months, The creed follows this threefold division of Father, Son, and Holy Ghost that comes out of the baptismal formula that Jesus gave us when he commanded us to go out and make disciples. And the church used it then, the Apostles' Creed, as it still does today for the purpose of evangelism and instruction. Catch that. The church uses the Apostles' Creed, the declaration of God as Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, and baptism for the purpose of evangelism and instruction. We are making disciples and we are teaching them. That's the Great Commission. It is on the confession of His saints that God builds His church and establishes it as a bulwark against the powers of darkness. Peter confesses, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus says, you will stand before the gates of Hades, and it will not prevail against you. 
Speaking of powers of darkness, let's go back to the Latin word symbolum. The word itself is derived from a Greek word, which is symbolon, which had a military connotation. It was a symbol, a watchword, a proof, a verification. It was, it was a military word. It was like a seal. A seal would be a printed image on some sort of wax or stone that they would break. And then one half would be given to one guy and one half would be taken by the other. And if for verification, a messenger would bring that seal and they would join the two together. And if it fit, if the, if the picture matched, that there was a verification. The completion of the seal verified the authenticity of the messenger. In this sense, the creed was a badge. It was a symbol, a proof of faith. And it's a proof that helped distinguish the early Christians from the Jews, the pagans, or the heretics. It was particularly useful in the, in the second century against the, the Gnostic heresies, which, which in, in the early church there were, there were uh, false teachers that arose, and they said, well, we, we're in the know. We, know. we know how you can get to know God better. And, and you have to have this special knowledge. And in their special knowledge, Jesus was, all of flesh was, was, was a mirage. God, God was tr- really spirit. And how we needed to, to know, get to know him was through special knowledge and emanations. And, and it denied the incarnation. It denied the truth of who Jesus was, that, Jesus, that God became flesh, that God became a man, and God sanctified our flesh. So the Apostles' Creed was particularly useful in, in, in delineating out that heresy. So this is why the Creed took particular significance at the time of baptism of new con- converts. It's, it conveyed the sign of inclusion on those who confessed and who now identified with Christ and his church. So when, when, we, when we go out to, to teach new believers, when we go out to disciple the nations and instruct them in all the things that Christ has taught us, this creed then is shorthand for all the things that Christ has taught us. That God is the Father, that Jesus is his Son, and he suffered and died, and God raised him from the dead. And his Holy Spirit is now applying salvation and eternal life to mankind. And so the, the new converts would be catechized, and the early church had an interesting system for doing this. They would catechize the uh, new believers for three years, and then they would, they would withhold the memorization of the Apostles' Creed till just... The, the last section of their teaching, and then on the eve of, of, uh, of, of Easter, they would, they would confess their faith by reciting the Apostles' Creed, they would be baptized, and they would partake of their first communion on, on Easter Sunday. But this was all, again, part of inclusion and, and watchword, and it was, it was, it was the, the church was entrenched. It was a, a church at war. Because of living in a pagan in a pagan society, so this baptismal font, this uh, this creed, was a verification of faith, and it was a verification of new believers' commitment to the church. Because it was a dangerous thing to be con- committed to the church; it was a, a dangerous thing. And so, so for these people to make these declarations and claim Jesus as their own Lord 
was a work of the Spirit. It was a work of, of God. And these people were, were turning their back on all of the, the things that they had held to before. The pagan, the pagan truths or the, the, Jews, uh, the Jewish way of salvation outside of Christ. Down through the centuries and through to today... The, the creed still acts as a wall defining the faith and reminding believers of what it is that we believe and what sets us apart from the world. This is why we recite it every Sunday. This is why we recite it, so that we are reminded every Sunday in the broad, big scheme of things, who we are. What we confess. What we believe. So yes, we get into specifics. We get into details when we're preaching through books and we're preaching through topics. But every week we are reminded of the grand scheme of the gospel. That God is the creator. And Jesus is his son. And he has saved us from our sin. So now we, there we have the historical background and usage of the creed. But there are some Christians who hold that creeds are unscriptural altogether. They have a creed. Their creed is no creed but the Bible. And it would be good to give a general defense of our use of creeds from the scriptures. As we've already seen, Jesus commands us to confess him before men. And Peter makes confession to Jesus of what he believes. But we also see the seeds of organizing the doctrines of Scripture in the New Testament also. For instance, in 2 Timothy chapter 1, starting at verse 13, Paul commands Timothy this way. He says, Hold fast the pattern of sound words which you have heard from me, in faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. That good thing which was committed to you, keep by the Holy Spirit, who dwells in us. So Paul speaks of this body of, of, of knowledge that, that, that Timothy has been given. Paul also refers to Timothy's former confession before witnesses in 1 Timothy 6. And, and here note also the militaristic tone of the confession. In 1 Timothy 6 starting at verse 12. Fight the good fight of faith. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life to which you were also called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Peter, uh, Timothy has made a profession of faith. A, a faith that was recognizable as a good profession. And this faith calls him, it's a battle call. It's, cry, it's calling him to defend the faith. This turns... Uh, into another confession of sorts that Paul gives. Um, so right, just carrying on right from there, after he says that, that he's confessed a good confession in the presence of many witnesses, Paul says, I urge you in the sight of God, who gives life to all things, and before Jesus Christ, who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep this commandment without spot, blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ's appearing, which he will manifest in his own time. And then he goes on and he, he gives another creed of his own. Who is the blessed and only potentate, the king of kings and lord of lords, who alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. So it's, it's both a doxology 
praising God and a creed of, of who Jesus is. And Paul closes the book of 1 Timothy referring to the body of knowledge Timothy had received. Again, notice the defensive nature of confession. It rules out falsehoods. 1 Timothy 6, verses 20 and 21. O Timothy, guard what was committed to your trust. Avoiding the profane and idle babblings and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge by professing it some astray concerning the faith. Grace be with you. Amen. So he says, Timothy, guard this creed. Guard the truth. Guard the gospel. It's been committed to your trust. And it will defend you against falsehoods. It defines what wickedness is. It defines what heresy is. And Paul, and for one more reference from 1 Corinthians 15, Paul gives us a summary of the gospel. This is probably one of the closest things in Scripture that we have that resembles the, uh, the Apostles' Creed. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, starting at verse 3. For I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He was seen by Cephas and then by the twelve. And he goes on to teach about the resurrection. The Apostles' Creed grew out of the apostolic era. It grew in the oral tradition. That's why we call it the Apostles' Creed. It's ancient. It comes from their era. Uh, It grew in, in an oral tradition. It was translated word to mouth by memorization of the first couple centuries as a faithful summary of the apostolic teachings. It was not written down until the late 300s. It was transmitted orally for hundreds of years. It wasn't written down until after Christianity became a legal religion in the Roman Empire. Does this sound like a secret password for churches to you? Yes, it does. The church was in the trenches. They were, they were fighting a war. Now, it was, the, so it was written down for the first time in the late 300s. Um, in, in the second, third century, we have references to it in some of the church fathers, where they might have allusions or, or comments about it, which give us hints about it. But we don't have it fully written out until the late 300s. Um, and it wasn't compiled in its present form, until the late 700s. In, in, in that time, in, in, in the 700s, the church leaders were assembling the, the, the practices of the church liturgy and trying to unify them. So what they found was, was a, a wide variety of, of liturgy and practice that was very similar to itself, to each other, but there were, there were mi- minor deviations. And so, so in, in, in the 8th century, they, they did a lot of work, and liturgical work, of, of con- compiling and, and, and bringing together a uniform um, creed. So it unified some slight variants of the creed. Most of it was consistent, but there were a few phrases that were included in the final version that were well-known and regularly used in some 
of the larger churches, but not in all of them. So there are some late additions to the formal creed, like the phrase, he descended into hell, was not in universal use, but it was used in, uh, in, a, in a number of places. Or the word, the holy, uh, the holy uh, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, the word conceived wasn't in, the, in all of the early churches' use. Uh, but all of them had the phrase, born of the Holy Spirit and the, and the Virgin Mary. And again, you see there's, there's a, a consistency in, in, in meaning, and yet there was variety in the, actual, uh, uh, the actual, actual form. And there were a couple other minor, minor details, that, and we'll get into those as we, as we study through the creed. But... What happened, though, is in that, in that time period, they did. They unified the creed. They put it together so that it, into the form that we have today. And it is one of the four ecumenical creeds. There are four creeds that we call ecumenical, which means worldwide or universal creeds. The Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Chalcedonian Creed, and the Athanasian Creed. Now, there's a little bit of variance on which churches hold to which particular creeds, but those are the four uh, ecumenical creeds. And together, these creeds identify Christian unity across denominational branches. You see, these creeds were formulated before the great schism of the church, before the the East-West divide in the 1100s. So these creeds identify the, the, this Christian unity, Eastern, Western, and Protestant. All Christians around the world hold to the truths that are proclaimed in these ecumenical creeds. And the, and the reason I'm teaching uh, this series on the Apostles' Creed is because it's both the oldest, the simplest, and it's the most widely used of the creeds. The reason the creed works for the sake of unifying such diverse wings of the church is that it's the essence of the gospel. The Apostles' Creed is the essence of the gospel. It's a simple yet profound declaration that Jesus is Lord and Savior and that He is all that is necessary for salvation. We read in Romans 10, verses 8 to 13. The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is, the word of faith which we preach. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says... Whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's the basis of our salvation. It's Jesus Christ. Simply. Nothing else saves us. And because the churches worldwide ecumenically hold to these four creeds, we will accept the baptism of Christians that are baptized into these churches. 
Because they believe in the Trinitarian God. They deny the, the heresies of Arius, the, the heresies of the, of the Gnostics, and of Nestorius, and we'll get into these. <laughs> we'll get into these. Because the, the Apostles' Creed was, was formulated in, in, the, in, in the early centuries in the Council of Nicaea, which was at 325 AD. The, 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 the church further defined Jesus' personhood and denied that Jesus was just a man and denied that Jesus was just God looking like a man. And, and they affirmed his, the unity, unity of, his, of his personhood and the, the division of his natures. But, um, and, and so, like I said, we're going to get into a lot of these, these details because this is, this is what the, the creed does, is it sets up fences for us. It explains to us who our God is. And it pr- protects us from the dangers of heresies that deny who Jesus is. In our text there in Romans 10, we read that there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. In the resurrection, Jesus will completely obliterate all denominational divides. He will answer all theological debates. And he will unify all of the diverse wings and branches of his church in himself. Jesus is Lord. We are one body in him. We are joined spiritually to every Christian around the world. Now this does not mean that the other creeds are not important. And by the other creeds, I mean the non-ecumenical creeds. It doesn't mean that they don't teach us truth or set up important walls and fences. It just means that at least this far, at least this far, We are all working on the same team. We are all fighting on the same side. And we ought not to call unclean what God has made holy. So through the course of this series, we will dive into the different declarations of the creed. And we will see the necessity of each phrase and the challenges that come with them. And the wonder they should stir up in our soul. If the creed teaches what the Bible teaches, and if the Bible teaches who God is, we should wonder and marvel at the truth we find there. For now, at the outset, we should be excited to learn what it means to confess and remember our faith in the Lord. We are enlisting in His services and declaring our allegiance to His cause When we confess our faith, we're signing up in his army. In our bold declaration of faith, we stand up to the gates of hell. And we deliver men from darkness to light through Christ, through the power of his spirit, from slavery to freedom. We proclaim what we believe, and that faith is what saves the world. So first, we must... Rejoice in learning about all of this stuff. Second, believe the content of the creed. We say we believe. What is it we believe in? We believe in the God of our baptism. The Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. The God who made all things. We believe in His Son who suffered and rose again and reigns in heaven. 
who will judge all the living and the dead and the spirit, who works out the will of God on the earth, who unites the church, the saints, and who applies forgiveness, new life, and resurrection from the dead. Now that was a mouthful, and it basically was repeating what the creed tells us every time we say it. But if you ever stood back and thought about it, that's a big pill to swallow. Like, we really believe that stuff. It sounds like a fairy tale. But it is what we believe. That's our faith. That's what God reveals in His Scriptures. It's the Gospel. The world thinks we're crazy for it. They think that we're sticking our head in the sand. But with the apostles, we utter these words. Who else has the words of life? Where else can we turn for truth? God has revealed these things to us. He's made it true to us and established it in our hearts by His Spirit. And with the saints together, we study the Scriptures. We study history and we find that there is no one else. And God has really done it. When we proclaim these truths, when we declare our faith in them, we're declaring what we know to be true from our experience and from what we see in the world. So believe the content of the creed. Finally, embrace the truth of the creed. Intellectual assent is one thing. We humans have the capacity to divide our intellect from our heart. Intellectual assent is one thing. Living it out is another. Hold on to this faith with your heart and soul. Experience the zeal of the Lord that overcomes the the enemies of darkness. For in Him and through Him and to Him are all things. You belong to Him. Your emotions belong to Him. Embrace Him. We are invited to be a part of His tidal wave of life that overcomes the death and darkness of our world. Repent of sin. Be bold in calling all men to faith. And worship with all your strength. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you and we rejoice because you have declared these truths to us in your word. We thank you and we rejoice because you have given these truths to us in the Apostles' Creed. We pray that your blessing will be upon our study of the creed. We pray that your word may come alive to us. That the light of of our faith may shine brightly before our eyes. That you will fill us with wonder and marvel at your goodness and your holiness and your graciousness and your mercy. We pray that you will fill us with faith. We pray that you will establish us and establish your kingdom. We pray now as you taught us to pray. delivered to us a powerful and faithful instruction in his word and through his church. He has given us a faith which comes down through the centuries. We have confessed his name and we have declared allegiance to him. And in response and reward, he has given us the sacraments, which function much the same way as the creed. Baptism brings us into covenant with him, and the supper affirms and strengthens that reality. Here we confess by actions of eating and drinking what we affirmed in the recitation of the Nicene Creed earlier. 
Here we participate in physical symbols which are perfectly united in this loaf. And as we, as we are united in one body, in the church, and in fellowship and communion with one another, God is building us into a mighty host who live by faith and who do His works. Receive and believe. The gospel is for all who are baptized and under the authority of Christ and His body, the church. By eating and drinking the bread and wine, we confess we are sinners whose only hope is the sovereign mercy of God. And we trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. Christ's body, broken for us. Let us pray. Thank you for listening to these excerpts from the worship service of Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in these messages, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact Pastor Dirk DeWinkle through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings. Thank you.